Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you won't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. Thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host, Patrick, from Polestring Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick. Ah, good morning, Mark. It is fall. <laughs> it is, I know. It has arrived. Our, our shows are, um, you know, we record in advance, and then, you know, when they go out, people might be listening to this in the spring. Well, I was going to say, in, in some places, uh, it is winter. It is fully winter. Right. And there's a big Arctic freeze hitting the, the nation this uh, this I thought, I thought you were going to tell me weekend. that was going to hit in Santa Barbara because I was like, yeah, no, not, we're not going to no. get the Arctic freeze in Santa but Barbara. But I, I would love you to meet our guest who's been here for, I'm going to guess, 29 or 30 years, uh, Marsha Bailey, who is the CEO and founder of the Women's Economic Ventures. Marsha, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been wanting to have you on the show for a while, and uh, we ran into each other at a, an event, as one does in Santa Barbara, and told you about the show and said, please come and join us. And you have made such an impact in the community um, with, you know, 14,000 clients. You call them clients or students or members? or You know, we, call them, we call them clients. Um, because they're uh, mature people, often, you know, middle-aged even. Our average client age is 42, and so. Oh. Um, and how, how, do they, how do they find you? And it's not just women, by the way, because right. there's, there's men, but it's predominantly women. So Women's Economic Ventures, we target women for our services. Um, but yes, we help men as well. About 85% of our clients are, are women. And over the years, really, the percentage of men coming to the program uh, has grown, which I think speaks well of the, the value of the programs that we offer. And then in um, October, you had your 25th anniversary. Congratulations. Last year, yes. Thank you. That's a big deal. You know, it is a big deal. It's hard to... Uh, kind of wrap my head around the fact that <laughs> it's been that long um, because there have been so many stages, you know, as the founder of an organization. Um, I've I've been there since it was me and a, you know, half-time administrator, so have gone through a lot of different stages with the organization from, you know, having to do everything to uh, having to learn how to delegate and give certain mm. things uh, up and, you know, let let go ownership of some things. And uh, that's not always an easy thing to do. I was going to ask, have, have, and you figured that out? You have that technique? You know, I think that's why I'm still here. Yeah. Um, you know, if I hadn't figured it out, I'd either be dead or bored to death. So, sure. you know, I, I think that's one of the the great things about having an opportunity to learn on the job is that, you know, you're always learning new things. There's new challenges. Um, you just never know what it's going to be. And, and so it's required me to step up and do things that, um, frankly, were pretty scary to me in a lot of ways. But um, uh, it's, it's been really uh, exciting and rewarding. And, and, you know, I think one of the best things about learning how to, to delegate particularly is um, seeing the other, uh, my colleagues, really blossom um, 
and uh, kind of take on authority in their roles. When you, you got out of school and you moved to Santa Barbara right after school, is that right? No, not right after school. I lived in uh, Columbus, Ohio for three years. I was uh, engaged to uh, and then married to my first husband who was uh, at Ohio State. And then we moved out here. He uh, had enrolled in Brooks, the photography oh, school. And oh. so we moved out here for that and then got divorced and stayed. And, you know, it's like once you come to Santa Barbara, it's pretty hard to leave, right? It's, Especially it's, when you're from Michigan. Yeah, it's a perfect place to get a divorce because you don't have to leave right away. You can just <laughs> heals, heals the wounds. Yes, the exactly. Yeah. exactly. What, what, I'm, I'm really, you know, we Mark, talk Mark, a lot. You're dancing over the fact that we don't really know what we, women's economic ventures is. That it hasn't been explained to our to our listener. What, I was, what it was I wanted yeah. to know what the what the idea the original idea where you f- saw that there was a gap or there was a need and sure. and that was born. Tell us about that. So um, the original idea really came from um, my work in women's services and my graduate studies. I um, got my master's in communication at UCSB and studied the feminist and anti-feminist rhetoric of the the suffrage movement in the ERA movement, and uh, started to work for the Rape Crisis Center doing uh, public relations and um, community education, and loved working with women, but let's face it, working in crisis intervention uh, for a long time is is tough, you know, especially when you're part of the target group, it's very stressful. And what I saw working both at the Rape Crisis Center and working closely with um, domestic violence solutions, we were co-located at the time, was that women who didn't have any economic resources are just more vulnerable in every way. You know, you can't can't get out of a relationship. And it, it goes all up and down the socioeconomic scale. You know, wealthy women, I think, are just as much captured, you know, by um, that as as women who don't come from uh, or don't aren't married to wealthy people or haven't made a lot of money in their own life and don't have those resources. And it just seems like there was not anything being done to address the inequity um, between women's pay and their opportunities. It was a time in the late 80s when a lot of information was coming out about um, the feminization of poverty is what they called it. And they started coming out with some data about, you know, what happened to women and men after divorce. And, you know, women's uh, standard of living usually went down and men's went up. And they started publishing uh, information about the pay gap then. Mm -hmm. And so I was a volunteer at what was then the Women's Community Building Project. And, um, really interested in developing some programming around, you know, how do we help women learn how to negotiate better? How do we teach women about money and investing and um, make decisions about what kinds of of work they go into, things like that. Um, And so that's really what got me started. And then I um, moved into a leadership role, um, became chairman of the board of uh, the Women's Community Building Project. And we owned a building on Milpa Street and really wasn't very feasibly usable for the kinds of things that we wanted to do. And so we we sold the building in 1989 and then launched the, the Women's Economic Ventures um, program. We started with um, 
a Grameen Bank model loan program. Um, mm. For your listeners who don't know about the Grameen Bank, it's a pure lending program that was created by Muhammad Yunus in um, Bangladesh. And he and the bank won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. Oh. So it was a program that was really targeted to um, providing low-cost capital um, well, not necessarily low cost, cost but um, capital um, to women um, to really help pull them, you know, out of poverty and and put them in positions where they they had more power and, and authority in everyday life. So we started out without with that model, found that it didn't work for us, and you know, over the years we have really um, morphed into an organization that provides a full. Uh, um, continuum of services from pre-business startup to business planning and development to, you know, how to how to grow and create a sustainable business. Um, we're also a loan fund, so we provide, uh, but our microloans are from, you know, any place, anywhere up to 25000 for a startup loan or $50,000 um, for an expansion loan. And we target businesses who fall in that gap where they can't get bank financing yet because their business isn't um, isn't profitable yet, and and often they don't. They also don't have the kinds of collateral that a bank would look for or experience. I, I a recent friend who just went through your program also running a very successful business, but didn't need the size of loan that a bank would offer. The bank bank wouldn't offer a loan lower than five hundred thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars for a small business. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially, yeah. especially the big banks. You know, it costs them just as much to make a. Small loan is a big loan, so they'd rather make a big loan because they make more money on it. Yeah, my friend needed twenty five thousand for a small expansion. We're well, not a small, a huge expansion, uh, but but not, you know, a hundred thousand right. dollar loan, a five hundred thousand dollar loan was was that was not what what that that that's too much risk yeah. for a small yeah, business. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What's been the biggest surprise over the years? You know, I think the biggest surprise is has been the continued interest in and growth of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, when we started, the first time I walked into to a room when we had had you know publicized that we were going to do this this informational meeting, and we heard this hubbub of voices, and you know, my, my board president and I were just kind of squealing with delight because we didn't know if nobody was going to show up or or you know we were going to have massive amounts of women, and so so. You know, in the beginning, I just kind of said, well, you know, at some point we're going to completely exhaust the market for this, and then our numbers are going to huh. start going down. Um, but that that hasn't been true, you know, at all, as you know. Um, there's much more attention being paid to entrepreneurship now. I mean, the number of entrepreneurial programs in it's colleges exploded. have exploded. Yes, it, it's just, it's it's amazing. What most people don't know is that despite all of that, because there's so much hype around that, um, the startup rate for businesses is the lowest it's been in 35 years. What? What do we attribute that to? Yep. Well, the numbers are this. So in spite of, you know, kind of all of the attention that uh, Mark Zuckerberg gets, uh, he's kind of a unicorn. So if you look at um, entrepreneurial activity among the baby boom, boom generation, uh, Generation X, and now uh, the millennial generation, it's been going down steadily. So the way that they uh, have looked at that is the percentage of, of 
people who are engaged in um, self-employment activity at the age of 30. So for baby boomers, it was 6.7%. For Gen Xers, it was 5.5%. For millennials, it's less than 4%. Less than 4% of millennials are self-employed. Yeah. So, so what's really interesting is when you, when you survey them, a huge proportion of them want to be self-employed. It's over 60%. They're aspirational for it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they want to do that. But, uh, you know, I think some of the, the thinking about it is that, um, you know, number one, um, most millennials are coming out of school with huge amounts of student debt. Right. So if you have an average of, I think, the average now is $34,000 or something in student debt when you graduate from college. Um, most responsible students are going to go get a job so they can pay that debt. So um, the risk of, you know, starting a business seems too great, I think. The barrier to entry, the overhead, all the all the buzzwords that yeah. go along with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the I'm, I'm in the midst of, of uh, writing an op-ed because I think it's a... It's something that could be addressed with some sound public policy. So, you know, I mean, how many times have you heard a politician say, oh, small businesses are the engines of our economy? It's the number one thing they say. So wouldn't it, shouldn't it be the number one thing that's happening? Exactly. So instead of giving tax breaks to big corporations who are already sitting on lots of money, who could create more jobs, they could raise wages if they wanted to. They don't want to. Um, Why aren't we looking at using... uh, policy to, for instance, if a millennial or anybody with student debt decides to start a business, so we, we put their, their uh, payments on hold for their student debt. And then for every job they create, we forgive a portion of their hmm. student debt. I mean, why don't we use policy as idea. an incentive, you know, yeah. as a carrot to get um, young people to feel like, yeah, I can take a risk because, you know, it's kind of like if you you don't feel like you can take a risk in your 20s when when you're going <laughs> to feel you should, like right? you, when you don't have kids right exactly you don't have a mortgage yeah. um, and what happens you know instead is you know we're seeing like if you look at the distribution of who's starting um, businesses it's really um, evened out it used to be more in the you know 30s but now if you look at like 20s 30s 40s and above 50s it's all pretty even um mm. the the biggest growth's coming in the 55 plus area the biggest i, I have a theory yeah. on that it was the um in 2008 we know when we had the recession yeah. and we had so many people hit this hit the bricks and said, listen, I've got, you know, 30 years of experience in doing X. I'm going to go out and, and sell that experience. And and I think they are now, what, nine years later, going on, on 10 years later, are the mentors for all of these startups. And, and there's so much startup activity, as you know, right, in co-working spaces yep, and hubs exactly. and, and all of that. And they're all looking for guys like me and women like you who, who've been there, done that, to come in and judge competitions, be mentors, do all of that stuff. So there's there's a lot of that going on. Uh, I've got to... Can I say one more thing about please that? Please so, so the other thing that happens is during the recession, there was a big spike in women-owned businesses, particularly among women of color. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that um, business startups are often counter-cyclical, right? So when people don't have access to well-paying jobs, like you business. said, they yep. start they start a business. Um, 
I think what we don't know is how many of those people who start businesses out of necessity rather than desire, you know, continue on in that once the job market starts to pick up again. I, I know you had a question mark, but 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 as you as you were talking, I had this feeling of that that uh, is Weave still in a defensive position of of attempting to to shore up or support um, a deficit inside of, of 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 women starting businesses, or do you have room inside of your programming now to to reach out and and do that that kind of imaginative, um, not just you know fix a problem, but really go out there and and and, and insert that kind of programming of, of like student loan forgiveness or, uh, you know, some innovative tech techniques into the rest of the world. Do you have that, that kind of like space in your, in your schedule? So I, I do over the last, um, five years, particularly, I've done a lot of work at the national level. So I've chaired oh. the Association of Women's Business Centers. So we're an advocacy organization for the um, 100 plus women's business organizations that receive some funding from um, the Small Business Administration. Uh, I also was on the National Women's Business Council that um, sponsors a lot of research around women's business ownership and then um, provides policy uh, recommendations to the White House and Congress and the Small Business Administration. So I, I have been able to do that. I'm starting to do um, some at the state level, too, because um, uh, amazingly, I think it's amazing that California is the sixth largest economy, really invests very little in uh, economic development or business development like we don't across the board or just for women across the board huh. across the board so we i can't remember how many years ago it was but the state actually eliminated the state department of commerce um <laughs> because they just take for granted that commerce well, is going to appear Bar or? santa barbara yeah. got rid of the economic development yes, department exactly really? well and it you know so as such as as ten, it was ten, two people well, there, yeah, yeah but that was 10 years ago yeah right? exactly yeah. where's well, so yeah. where's the where's the outcry where's the like should I mean, inside of an environment that seems to, seems to 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 value entrepreneurship right. and the startup environment, and oh, we're the just the we're just the you know the Silicon Coast, and is it just great? Let's let's bring it in. I I think there is just an assumption that oh, we don't need it. Our economy, you know, it'll it, self level. It, They're going to come here anyway. It, right. Well, and it's like uh, like Kathy O'Dell, my board president, used to say, you know, uh, when you're talking about water policy, you know, the problem is, and then it rained. Right. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> and then and then Sonos moved here, so we're fine, right? Yes, Isn't that great? Exactly. Right. You got Procore, you've got and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so so, you know, after a downturn and then we start to bounce back and it's like, Oh, okay, never mind. Um I when I when we first started up I remember uh going to visit the mayor because we at that point we we didn't have any kind of public money at all and didn't get any for, for a few years. And you know, it was a real educational process. When when I talked about economic development, I think they only heard the word development. I was going to say, that sounds mm. very polite to you. It was, a, it was an educational process. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So, so and, and we're still not there. I mean, if you compare us with um, uh, Ventura County has a very strong infrastructure around economic development. So does San Luis Obispo. They have their Economic Vitality Corporation. Um, and Santa Barbara just kind of coasts along. And, you know, economic development, you know, a part part of the problem is that it's had a bad rap. You know, for a long time it was smokestack 
chasing kinds of things. Oh, mm. yeah, let's go right. get GM right. to build a new plant. Right. Well, yeah. we don't want GM right. to build a plant here, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. Like <laughs> if Amazon H2 came here, we don't want that. Right. Yeah. So, so, but what we do want is jobs that pay well enough so people Knowledge can workers. live here, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's a challenge. I want to go back to, I didn't realize you, you worked at the national level. That must be immensely satisfying, especially bringing all the experience you have to that conversation. Um, so there's a national conversation going on right now around sexual harassment mm -hmm. in the workplace. And it's it, there's all of these high profile conversations but it feels like it's not any one industry. And what we're hearing a lot, it's kind of like every industry. And we're finally now as a, as a country having a conversation yeah. and women are feeling empowered and, and to, to get out and tell their story. I'm curious how that's going to affect your programming and training. You know, I, I don't know if it will affect our training. I, I will say that when we started having come out of the rape crisis center and sexual harassment was something that we were dealing with you know in the 70s and 80s it's not a new it's not a new issue what's what's new is is this uh, kind of groundswell of uh, women feeling safe enough uh, to come out and and talk about it uh, and one of the things i used to always tell our our teachers and instructors and volunteers is that you know you never know when that issue is going to come up in the classroom and you need to be prepared to talk about it um, I think it you know if I look at my own history um, the last job I had working in the for-profit sector I worked for uh, a man who when I asked him what I wanted to be paid said oh I can't pay you that because that's what the woman who's worked here the longest makes so, yeah, pay scale for men and a pay scale for, mm. for women. And I, you know, I just said, yeah, you know, after that job, it was that that was it. That was the last time I was not going to work in that environment again. So it's not just, you know, I worked for a real estate company for a while doing uh, advertising for them, and you know, one of the guys I worked with said, well, women deserve to be paid less because they, you know, miss five days every month because of their period. And he actually said that. He actually said that, yeah, yeah. And then after he woke up. Um, he <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think that a lot, of, a lot of the people you see coming through your program are responding to that, that uh, environment and saying, I, I can't, this is untenable. I need to just start my own business. Is that, is that a, a response or... You know, I don't collect any, we don't collect data around that specifically, but I would say uh, anecdotally over the years there, I think a lot of women fall into one of two camps. One is they hit the glass ceiling, right? So they have 25 years of business experience and they've seen the writing on the wall and they're just, you know, they've mm -hmm. gone as far as they can. Um, the other thing is we see we see a lot of women going through big transitions in their lives. And that's always been true. So a woman getting a divorce, her kids have grown up and moved out, um, uh, life-threatening illnesses. Mm. Um, we've had a lot of women over the Starting years. Starting a business while you have a life-threatening illness? After, after. Oh, so, yeah. uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of clients who have had, um, you know, come out of terrible illnesses or, or long-term disabilities who can't 
work in a, a traditional job environment because they can't sit mm. in a chair for eight hours a day. Um, and so self-employment was something that they could do, you know, around create a schedule that, that worked for them. So we've seen a lot of that over the years. I think we are seeing more younger women now. So it looks like I talked to one of our guest speakers the other the other day, and she was saying the classes look more like um, – you know, you've got the younger women and you've got the older women. So I think you've got a couple things going on there. You've got, you know, younger women feeling more uh, like self-employment and business development is is a viable opportunity for them, whereas they didn't have a lot of role models there in the past. But at the other end of the spectrum, you've got women my age who don't feel like they have enough money to retire. Uh, and mm-hmm. so they might be doing, you know, creating something on, you know, what the kids call a side hustle, basically, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to uh, to bring in more money because, you know, women's pensions tend to be half as much as men's. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, you add that to Social Security, it's not enough to live on. My mom just retired after 37 years teaching. Mm-hmm. And, and because of various choices that the school district made, uh, especially in the Bush era with her pension, you know, like she, uh, you know, she was talking about how she lost, you know, 40% of her pension one year because they privatized it. Like watching it kind of day to day just disappear mm-hmm. uh, into the into the pockets of, of, of private economy. Uh, well, and how scary is that when you're at a time in your career where you can't recover from that? Well, she worked right? seven years past when right. she should have retired yeah. because she had to right. she had to keep going. To co- and, and in the meantime, you know, ate up essentially. A portion that 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 I think in our country we have deemed saying, you know, there's a certain time when you should be able to to put aside your day to day business and 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 uh, you know spend time with your grandkids. That's that's what that's the American dream. But mm-hmm. but because of certain decisions that were made, uh, you know, kind of above her, she had to she you know had to work longer and, yeah. and forfeit that kind of that that that. Uh, portion of her life. Yeah, and despite the fact that we are, most of us are are living longer, you know, you just yeah. hope that you're going to be healthy enough, you know, to do those things that you wanted to do when you're 65, and maybe yeah. now you're not going to do till you're 75. Right. Um, I know that the founder of TED, when he sold TED, went to form TED Med to focus on, he said, it's wealth and health. It's like, it's like how do I make those dollars last longer and then how do oh, I stay yeah. healthy to, yeah. to enjoy yeah. them? I'm thinking of my in-laws who um, bought a piece of property in Carpinteria. And they were teachers, mm-hmm. both of them retired. But it's an income-producing property because there's avocados and cherimoyas. And that's passive income for them that they just make sure the water bill's paid. And, yep. you know, and, and they love that. They love farming and, and doing all of that kind of thing. <laughs> Retire into farming. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's an old person's gig. It's really. It's, well, Get up was, at four in the morning yeah. and milk well, the was, cows. He was and, born yeah. on a farm in yeah. Illinois. Yeah. And, and he, you know, he loves that. He loves being out with them, but doesn't really want to do all of that hard sure. work. And it's sure. a way to, to uh, you know, the hill, the the foothills of Carpinteria are really just ideally yeah. suited yeah. Uh, for all of that. Right now, the current um, discussion is around all the cannabis farms, uh-huh. where mm-hmm. all of the flowers have left Carpinteria because they're easily really? cheap, more cheaper, yeah. cheaply produced uh, elsewhere, and you can get them here the next day from anywhere in the world. And cannabis is, you know, a hundred x the profit margins, and so it's all yeah. it's all changing. Uh, tell me. 
I want to on on both sides of that coin that that glass ceiling where you've got a woman who's you know been a productive member of some corporation then hits the ceiling because you know hold it I'm going to go out and do my own thing. Give us a couple of examples of things that they go do, and maybe our listener mm-hmm. will that will inspire them. So uh, one of them was had worked in the medical device field, and so she started up her own company, um, bringing new medical devices to market. Um, another uh, was uh, or is an, an engineer who. Um, you know, kind of went through the whole thing. If you look at women in engineering programs, they're they're still right pretty huge deficit. low numbers. Yeah. I think it's still under thirty percent are women. Um, so she she you know kind of been surrounded by this male work culture for a long time, and so she went off and started. Um, I believe she started an energy company. I can't think the think of the the name of the company right now. Um, you know, the other thing that's interesting is when you see people who have had a long career in something but end up wanting to do something completely different. Right. So we had one woman uh, very early on who'd, who'd uh, been a bookkeeper for 25 years. And so she came into the program thinking she was going to start up an independent bookkeeping business. And one of the things that we do in the program is we do go through a lot of kind of self-assessment to help you think about, you mm. know, not only mm. what can you do, but what do you really love doing? Because right. we really believe that people should feel passionate about, about their business. And halfway through the program, she said, you know what? I hate bookkeeping. <laughs> She said, ding, I want to be ding, a ding, wedding ding. planner. Oh, <laughs> So really? completely, completely different. I mean, probably uh, the skill set lines up of, of being organized and, and, and straight, right. you know, keeping everything in the right column and all that. Well, and having financial skills is great because I'll tell yeah. you, that's a, a big deficit for, for most business owners. Do you think that there's a lot of, in your experience, when you've watched um, um, – People come into the program because I'm, I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about all of the all of the things that get in the way. The fact that a program like yours needs to exist is because of starting a business has these kind of inherent uh, steps that you have to take that are really, really kind of need, you need a you need a guide, you need a Sherpa to help you through the idea of business licensing and accounting and and all of the kind of components that go along with creating a business. You know, I don't think it's that so much. I think it's just all in our head it's like what we are used to like if you if you look at people who start a business whose parents owned a business they don't see anything risky or unusual about that at all you know i mean you see that all the time you see generations of doctors generations of lawyers it's Um, the number one determiner of what you're going to do for a living so same thing with with business or you see somebody who's um uh immigrated here recently from a company that or a country where primarily there's small business owners mm-hmm. it's like it's second nature they might not know kind of all the regulatory and um, which counter to go to at the city yeah, or, yeah exactly and and kind of the tax policies and things like that but I, you know, I think that the really the biggest thing is just what's in your head I there's a great book um, called The Job Shift by William Bridges. It came out probably, I don't know, 15 years ago now. And he talked about how prior to the Industrial Revolution, everybody worked for themselves. They were either a farmer or they had a trade. And that when these big companies came along and started hiring people, people were totally mistrustful of 
putting their faith in these companies, you know, to give them a paycheck. And mm. now look at it. We've totally reversed that. We feel like we're safe and secure if we have a paycheck when the reality is you can get a pink slip in that envelope any, Every, any, any day. Yeah, any day. And you don't have any control over that. We're, we're an at-will state. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's, it's all in what you're, what you're used to and what you're comfortable with, I think. I've, I've, I, argued this for years about that my my grandparents owned a small grocery store out in the countryside and then when world war ii uh took effect they, they moved in to this kind of like they they forfeited a lot of the uh control they had you know seeking something that was more securities yeah. seeking something that was more you know uh and i always have this kind of feeling of like the supermarket the profit is all kind of wedged towards, I've gone off about this before, but the profit is all wedged towards, you know, one kind of owner and the individual people who, who run the shop don't actually make make the profit that they would right. if they owned their own individual grocery store. Right. Uh, and while the work would be essentially very similar, uh, they're, they're kind of forfeiting the slice of profit in exchange for working in this kind of very specific place. Exactly. Right. And, right. and I think if you look at that from the point of view of, um, especially if you're like a professional, so you're working for a professional firm, like say you're an architect and, you know, you're seeing that your hours are being billed out at, you know, probably four times what you're actually being paid. Right. And, and then people start saying, well, why am I, why shouldn't I profit that? from that myself. Um, but of course, then that does put you on the, uh, uh, on the hook to, to have to go out and sell the... something. Exactly. <laughs> That's we, my, my wife is a landscape architect. And, and part of the thing we talk about is that, um, there's who a, owns our own successful business, who owns our own successful business in town, Courtney Jane Miller, landscape architect. There's a plug. Yep. Um, and, but we talk about, uh, keeping the lights on and then securing the contracts. And so there are two different kinds of people, uh, that she works with regularly, and not just, but just in her vendors, and in she, we, we subcontract with a lot of people. Um, and part of the conversation is, is that some people don't want to have to go do the sales. They don't want to do the sales. They don't want to pay the electric bill, the taxes at the end of right. the year. They want to show up, get a paycheck, and then and then leave work at work. We, right. you know, mm-hmm. in our, our family, we don't get to leave work at right. work. Work right. is right. work is part right. of of yeah. our whole family. Yeah. But um, uh, but at the same time, there there is that conversation of, of 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 profit sharing and where does it land and how does if you're if if we have an employee and we're billing them out, we need to be transparent to a certain extent of, of where that money does go to, because because otherwise that's that's I've I've been that person where I was making twelve dollars an hour and they were billing one hundred and twenty five dollars an hour to work with me, from a client and I'm thinking. Boy, that seems like a lot to keep the lights mm-hmm. on. That seems like a large amount of overhead. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a full understanding of the yeah. company. Sure, sure, but, sure. but you know, it, it, it hurt every time yeah. I every time I handed them the invoice knowing what, what uh, I was making. I'm gonna stay on that bit of it, which is I I have some unique skill and oh, I could maybe make a business selling that skill. If I'm gonna let's mm-hmm. stay with the um, solopreneur or the the work at home and there's a whole movement of that mm-hmm. I, I, I get that Chan- chances are to this recent part of the discussion they don't know how to sell or they don't know how to uh, I won't say they don't know how to sell they don't know how to ask for the business mm-hmm. right that's that's the thing yeah. it's like can I I can get you it's like all the way up to the point and then I don't know how to ask for the business how have you found a, a way to teach that that's effective? 
good, good question. I, I hope so. I, I, um, I think there's other. Um, I think there's other issues when you're a solo printer too, because I, I was married to one for several years, and he, he loved doing the work, um, but he, he was in the medical device field and doing um, clinical studies, which were generally pretty long-term, you know, so he might be working for a single client for for a year, and then all of a sudden, you know, that job's gone, now he's got to find another job, and he never wanted to hire anybody else, and so that means, you know, you can't really be looking for work while you have work because you don't have the capacity to do additional work till you're done with the work you have, and so... So here's where we come up against, I think, one of the biggest challenge for um, these, you know, very small solo printers is that, is that should I hire an employee or not? First and employee. Fir oh. Yeah, first employee is a huge, huge obstacle. You know, number one, uh, you know, when you only work for yourself, if you don't get a paycheck, you don't get a paycheck, but when you have somebody working for you, they have to get they their paycheck. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you can't say, "Hey, can you you know wait a couple of weeks for your paycheck?" Um, <laughs> That's not an employee. <laughs> they won't. They won't wait. No, yet. they won't See come. Bye -bye. They will not come back because they can't say that to their landlord. Yeah. So, so that's that is one of the issues that we really work hard at is. Um, getting women to move beyond bootstrapping. So, mm -hmm. you know, everybody needs to bootstrap a little bit in mm -hmm. the beginning, right? You've got to put in your sweat equity, you put in your savings or, you know, kind of whatever assets you have to bring to the table. But there's a lot of people who always think it's better to not have debt. And so by following that line of thought, they're not ever able to leverage anything you know, to, to get bigger. So, you know, we had actually one of the, our early clients was a landscape business and she was still out there managing the jobs and, you know, mm -hmm. I dare say digging, you know, <laughs> some holes. And um, by the end of the program, by just reviewing how she was using her time and realizing exactly what you said, Mark, wow. that her highest and best use of her time was selling. Huh. was to be out there selling, not to be managing jobs. And so she grew, uh, I think she quadrupled her business in about a Holy year. Yeah. Just by figuring out what she should. More time selling. Yeah, yeah what, what, exactly. What, yeah. Where yeah. she was, what you, you call it, and it, I've heard this term before, but best and highest use? Yeah, kind of highest and best use, of, and best of, use. of her time. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you, you talk to a lot of those solopreneurs and how are you doing? Oh my God, I'm so busy. You know, mm -hmm. like, they're, mm -hmm. well, they're busy because they're doing everything. Getting stamps. Yeah. I gotta go get stamps. <laughs> exactly. I remember when when yeah. we when our our office manager now, uh, or maybe it was the previous one, said, um, you know, they'll just bring you stamps if you just let the post office know that you need some yeah. stamps. And it was like, I don't have really? to go stand. That's no, a yeah. thing. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, you can just go online at, at usps.gov. Breaking news. They'll yeah. even come and pick up your boxes. They'll send you free boxes. Oh my gosh! All kinds I, of good stuff. I, you know, I I love business being. <laughs> you in heard business, it here first, everybody. But, but the United States Post Office provides a level of service that is is no other no other company in the world does what they can do. If you go online, just log in. Uh, they the mail guy who or, or gal the mail carrier who comes to yeah. your office every day. Uh, they are doing probably 10% of the service that they can do for yep. you. Click and ship, people. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Just invest in a good scale yep. and mm-hmm. you're in business. Print all your labels there. And yep. You don't have to sign up for a service. Yeah. And it's at least 50% less than the others. I want to go back to the the selling part, the business development part. Mm-hmm. So you, you told us um, your husband had, uh, he would work and then he'd have a client and would checks start come, stop coming and they have to go on the mm-hmm. next one. And there's a, a gap, a big air gap there, right? Because right? most of the time in professional services, the sales cycle is 90 to 120 days, right? So mm-hmm. you're not going to get started right away and you're not going to get all your money in up front. Right. There's all of that. I'm going to couple that thought with something you said earlier about the women come in two camps. One was the they hit the glass ceiling or there was a big transition in life. And I work with a client back east. Her business is called Strategic Transitions. Mm. And that's what she does. It's typically mm. women who are transitioning out of an educational organization or out of a teaching role and into a management role. So that she uh, works with women who want to be presidents of universities, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, mm-hmm. the big transitions. So her business is all is coaching and doing workshops and speaking and podcasting and all of that. And I said, well, how, how are you doing on your business development? She said, oh, yeah, I got to do that. Oh, yeah, I got to do that. And I found what works is to schedule it. So we put it in to her schedule. It's 30 minutes a day. It's only 30 minutes. Yep. Do some emails, make some outbound calls, do some networking, whatever it is, but a thir- just 30 minutes. Because everybody can say, well, oh, it's just so much work. That's 7% of your day. You can, thank you for the math. No art, art school. That's art school <laughs> and oh, me math. Too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Left yeah. brain, right brain. Uh-huh. But if you just did 30 minutes a day, because what happens is you need a pipeline, right? There's Absolutely. deals in yeah. the pipeline. And you, you know when those things can start up because you have a fiscal responsibility to your yourself and your partner if exactly. you're a solopreneur, right? Yep. No, you're, you're exactly right. I think that is the only way to do, to, to schedule it, whether it's 30 minutes a day or it's half a day a week or however you do it. Um, and, I, and I think breaking it down to 30 minutes a day makes it easier because like... Psychologically, like, it exactly. feels... Exactly. Seems, yeah. seems small. Um you know, I've I've known CEOs of of much larger companies who who have told me that that you know they had to really get over uh, their uh, kind of aversion to selling and and you know the re- the reality is too many of us think of selling as you know the guy in the plaid coat at the used car lot. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but really. You know, we're selling all the time. I'm selling while I'm here on your podcast and telling you about, you know, about our program, why we need it. It's just, uh, it's not a dishonest thing at, at all. It's it's just kind of telling your story and trying to figure out uh, if you can if if you can meet somebody else's need, you know, with your product or your service. Um, but uh, you know, asking, you know, back to your original uh, comment about. You know, asking asking for the business, and you know, which is really closing as far as I'm concerned. So closing the deal, and then asking for the right amount of money. You know, pricing that's a that's another huge <laughs> obstacle. Is that too many? In uh, this may be true all across the board, but especially with women, they just agonize over their pricing and tend to mm-hmm. underprice themselves. Mm-hmm. So two exact comments on that. One. Uh, 
double the price. Yeah. <laughs> just just flat out, just, yeah, just exactly. flat out, just yep. double the price yeah. and believe that you're worth it. Yeah. That mm-hmm. Just yeah. do that. Just believe it. Yeah. Um, uh, my wife has her own business. She's a speaker coach and she's double the price. I mean, if you have a waiting list, you're charging, you're not charging enough. Exactly. And the other, yeah. the other um, thing that I learned, and I've been selling since I was 14, but the, there was one sentence that changed everything for me a few years back and that I've been teaching this sentence, which is you have to believe that you have something of value for someone else, that what you have is going to materially affect and improve their life. Right. You have to believe that. If you don't, then right. get out of the business. Um, and that you owe it to them to ha- make that available to them. That, that's You owe it to them, mm-hmm. right? That's a mind shift change. That happened. So what will happen with me when it's obvious that the person wants to buy from me and they're waiting for me to say something? <laughs> like mm-hmm. how do, They want to be closed. A lot of people like to be closed. Um, the, here's the transitional sentence to go from the A to the B to the C to the close. Would it be okay if I let you know what it's like to work with me? It doesn't mm-hmm. feel slimy or, mm-hmm. or used car-like or, hey, I've got a special deal or any, any of that other mm-hmm. framing language. Yeah. Would it be okay? Because now, and in, i got to say, no one's ever said no. <laughs> well, yeah. They could, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. you like, well, room. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah. yeah, that would be good. And so when you do that in front of a group of people, you've just done a presentation. Now you want to make an offer to have them come work with you mm-hmm. or buy that thing you have, but you don't want to be all, hold your DVD up or your, we don't do DVDs anymore, but whatever <laughs> the book or what, go into the back of yeah. the room, you don't, would it be okay if I told you what it's like to work with me? And that is this magical unlocking sense mm-hmm. that I've found with the people that are, are now using that, that I work with, which just it, it works great. Yeah, it's great. Well, and you're you're asking permission rather than just you know, mm-hmm. kind of trying to strong arm somebody into to doing something. You know, it's like uh, over the years because I've had to do a lot of fundraising and continue to do a lot of fundraising. I've learned you know kind of my own uh, sentences around What's your that sense? too. So, so um, one of them is like when I'm meeting someone new, it's just like, would you like to learn more about what we do? Right. It, you know, same kind of thing. Um, when I'm fundraising, it's like, could you consider a gift of X, Y, Z? Um, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I got, I was working with a coach for a while, um, and I said, you know, I, I don't like the telephone. I much re- I like pers- face-to-face, right. you know, interaction. I just, you don't get the cues on the telephone, right? right? right. You know, and, and plus I call up a donor. It might be an older donor. Their hearing isn't so good mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And I say, hi, this is Marsha. How are you? Who? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then immediately you feel like, oh, my gosh, she doesn't even remember who I am. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, where was I going with this? I the best piece totally of advice you ever got. Yes. Well, so, so one of my questions was, you know, I feel like I'm harassing them if I call them too much on the phone, but yet I don't want to feel like, I don't want them to feel like the only time I call them is when I want something from them. Yes, when I, when I want money. And she said, well, why don't you just tell them that and ask them, you know? <laughs> I said, what a concept. <laughs> tell, tell them that you're uncomfortable, you know, yeah. not, not, you know, that you don't want to 
call them too much, but you want to make sure that that they have as much access to you as as they want. And so I did that with one of my big donors and said, you know, how much, you know, how often do you want to hear from me and 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 how in what context? She said, well, let's just go out to lunch twice a year. There you go. There you go. You know, wow. how easy was that? What a but, great relationship that yeah. must be. Yes, and yeah. it, but in my head, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm putting all kinds of thoughts in their heads. And, of course. This is back to the bookkeeper thing. Yes, and I'm totally yeah. paranoid yeah. about what they're thinking. Frame and, of mind. And, yeah, trying to mind. second guess. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was really, you know, it, and, and really, I mean, when you think about it, when somebody says to you, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable bringing this up is it okay if we talk about this um to me that's much more comfortable than somebody just kind of launching into something that maybe maybe or is trying or to is spin not. it yeah trying to spin it exactly what, what, what's funny is is, is that I, I think in in that is that is that i probably do want to help with whatever they're telling me but i will be turned away by that strong arm and and yet yeah. if you if you give me the room to say no 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 please Tell, tell me more about this. I yeah. want to know more. But that lunch, that is so, that inspires me yeah. so much. Go to lunch twice a year. Oh, I'm gonna that's go really double, doable. I'm going to go triple my lunch budget right now. Yeah. Right. I'll yeah. just put it on, yeah. And so I put it on my calendar and there it is. that's what we do. So when you, when you think about the role of an organization, I'm talking to my listener now, and your role in your, your small, your, it's really a small community. No matter if you're in a big city, there's a small community right. that you relate to. Go out and have lunch. Go have a cup of coffee. I met a guy Facetime. at TEDx um, last weekend at the after party. There was I. Uh, our deal is um, go to people who are standing on the edges and engage them. Oh, right? my, oh it's the we, best thing we, to do. I love. Yeah. I love it's doing since that. Junior high. Yes, yeah. that is what totally a wonderful works. thing to do. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there was an older guy, and TEDx tends to draw a younger crowd, especially at the after party. And I just went up and said, "So." You know, and, and he obviously knows who I am because I was on stage and thank you so much and what was your favorite part or your biggest surprise or, or that kind of thing and get talking to him. And I was, I said, you and I are going to have a long relationship. I just know that. I can tell. We're of a similar age. He uh, he's uh, directs the Center for Future Studies or Future Thinker mm-hmm. Global. I mean, it's like a it's a think tank at mm. USC mm. and he's down there twice a month, but he, he moved to Santa Barbara and I was like, that's what I love about Ted. That's what I love about, but that's not an email thing. <laughs> right. That's not a, let's go. Oh, you wouldn't have been able to find him other, find him otherwise. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I love those, those specifically there's, there's a little difference here. There's the, I'm going to go have a no agenda meal. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm just here about the relationship. I'm not here to, as the precursor to the ask, this is, I really care about your relationship. Right. Thank you so much. And I, I, I want to thank you for your support. But what else are you doing in life? How are the grandkids or how the whatever, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because in, in, you know, traditional fundraising training, they lots of times will say, your donors are not your friends. And it's like, I beg to differ with that. Yeah. A lot of my donors really? have become my friends. I mean, mm. there's one donor. Um, we've become very good friends. I take her to get her Christmas tree every year because yeah, we, we have a truck, oh, you know. Why would you I love that. Uh, I know. I know. I, we have another donor who she's been a, a great supporter for years and years and years. And um, 
you know, we go to lunch or we go have a glass of wine and, and it's, you know, we're catching up and, you know, probably 50% of the time she pulls a check out of her purse that she's ever, no she's kidding. already written. I don't even ever have to ask um, because it's just a relationship and she likes to know what's, what's going on. But, but if she's talking, why wouldn't you be, if, why wouldn't you be friends with your donors? If she's talking to her friends about your venture, which you yeah, want, exactly. don't you want her to say, Oh, my friend Marsha runs Yes. That. My friend mm. Marsha runs Absolutely. That. And mm. if you wanted to get involved, I know exactly yeah. how to make that happen. Oh, All of a good. sudden, you've got an advocate, not just a donor. Exactly. I thought it was such an odd thing yeah. to say for a fundraising trainer. It's There's like, a yeah. lot of sales training, because I'm going to say fundraising <laughs> is in the sales training, sure. where um, it's not about the friends. You know, it's, I would have every one of the clients that I work with now, I'd have them over to my house. I've had people come and they'll come here for, who doesn't want to come to Santa Barbara? Right. Spend a couple of day workshop here and they sleep in the guest room, right? They're, they're yeah. part of the family. Yeah. And we we talk to them like that. Like you're, you mean a lot to us. And yeah. You, you know, you guys matter. No, it's best to keep them at arm's distance. Yes. Think, really. it's just <laughs> well, really, if you're going to be asking them to support you on the most important thing in your life, I think it's best not to. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. don't get close. Don't get close. Uh, you know, I went back to what we were talking about in sales, and we've, we have this conversation a lot on the show. But I remember at Wavefront, which is my, the mm-hmm. computer yep. software company, I, I was all about the art of the computer, and that's all I cared about. And I remember walking in, and on my door, there was a big note taped to it. It says, nothing happens till somebody sells something. <laughs> and I was like, oh. He says, we're every, and it was, we had hired a new sales, a guy who was going to run that part. He goes, everybody sells. Everybody, he, everybody's selling. Whether Absolutely. You know, it or not. Yeah. you know, even within a nonprofit, you know, and I'm so talking about running, you know, my own nonprofit business here. Um, we do sales training for our employees That's and great, and people people yep. think well why do you need sales training you know at a nonprofit well for the same reason you do for a for profit is you have people calling up and um, you need to know how to ascertain what their needs are and whether you can fill those needs are needs or not and then you know put them into the into the right program and you know we charge fees for our programs it's part of uh, you know it's part of our own long term sustainability but I think uh, a, a lot of nonprofits kind of shy away from that um everybody's in development in a small nonprofit. yeah if you've got five people exactly you really do have to get rid of the silos you know if you're in program you're you're generating income from um from fees if you're in fundraising you're you're both doing direct fundraising but you're also doing marketing for the program you're supporting a lot of the program events i mean there's a lot of crossover in nonprofits and there there should be i think that's when you're most powerful that's when you're yeah. able to to maximize your your effect on a community exactly was someone had said to me once that the only difference between nonprofit and the profit organizations and efforts is a tax status <laughs> <laughs> i, I well, and I'll tell you this, and the founder leaves all the equity in the company. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. On, on that note, yeah. um, Marsha, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us. This is, um, I, we're in 42 countries with this show. Wow, and We have people great. listening from, from everywhere. And so, listener, if you're listening, go uh, see if there's a, an organization that's like this in your community. See how you could help if there isn't one. And uh, you feel like you could get together with your friends and start a small, co- small cohort and start something like this. 
we can find you at Women's Economic Ventures. Yep, and we're webonline.org, W-E-B-online.org. And I'm sure if someone called from Finland and wanted to know, you would take their call. Absolutely. I've worked in Jordan and Hungary and France and um, done lots of interesting things. Anywhere there's people who want to start a business. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Isn't that great? Now, uh, our listener knows that it's at this time of the show where um, I, and you you have an unfair competitive advantage because you have a communications background. Uh, We like to give you first dibs on uh, creating a title for the show. So that if someone's come in through one of the other shows and now they're looking through our extensive... How many shows are we at, Patrick? I think I... Can I honestly say I've lost count? (laughs) I think we're up over 180. Yeah. Yeah. So they're looking for what to look at next. And it's all about the title. So what are we going to call the show? Okay, so my choice would be kind of a new tagline that we're starting a little bit called uh, Changing the Face of Business. There it is. Okay, there it is. I love it. See? Changing the face of business. Marsha, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I appreciate it. I also want to thank California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman & Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pullstring Press. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, drop us a note to partner at 805connect.com. And Patrick, this is part of the show where I ask you to ask the user, the listener to do something. Yeah, uh, you know, this is a podcast and the way in which a podcast gets out into the world. uh, We don't have a large broadcast network necessarily uh, to attract people. So rate, write, review. Those reviews, those ratings are what allow people to uh, appreciate us uh, with that before they listen to us. Uh, And the other thing is, is uh, find a friend who hasn't listened to the show yet and uh, get them uh, get them going with us. But uh, perhaps more important than that is uh, is a thing that I've been uh, advocating for a lot lately, which is uh, meet the owner. So go, whatever business you're using on a regular basis, um, find out who the owner is and meet that owner. And if you can't meet that owner, maybe you need to find a new new business to uh, go to because uh, knowing the owners means that you know where, uh, what you're spending is going uh, and, and, you know, look for people that you uh, align with values, you know, find, find the place and, and spend money at places that matter. I love I love that. Make your business matter so people will come spend money at yeah, it. As a small business owner yeah. myself, I I <laughs> go meet the owner. Know who the owners are. Yeah. 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 They're makes, important. Makes a huge difference and I think everybody appreciates that. Thank you so much. I would as the uh, owner of this podcast, I would love to hear from you. So uh, just drop me a note. Um, we get all of our suggestions for speakers and and guests um, through your kind introductions. So just drop me a note at mark at 805connect.com and I thank you in advance for that. So until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.